The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Coming up on this episode of American POTUS, two presidents of the same team with the curious name, the Whig Party. For this brief moment of the mid-1800s, it was the powerful and divisive home for Zachary Taylor and his VP Millard Fillmore. But just as soon as this party came to power, they disappeared due to infighting, regional division, and oh yeah, the impending civil war. Old rough and ready Zachary Taylor, his successor Millard Fillmore, and the Whig Party. They're next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us understand these two really interesting presidents is historian and author Michael Holt. He has a BA from Princeton and a PhD from Johns Hopkins. He's been a professor at Yale, Stanford, and the University of Virginia for 37 years. He's put together nine terrific books on politics in the 19th century, which is exactly what we want to focus on today. Michael, you're obviously the man who knows this crazy political time. Thanks for joining us here on American POTUS. Well, I'm pleased to be here. Michael, I'm a real fan of your work. Let, let's first talk about President Zachary Taylor. He grew up uh, in Kentucky, entered the Army. How did he distinguish himself in the War of 1812, the Indian Wars, and how did he get the nickname Old Rough and Ready? Uh, well, you know, I, I had to do some research on this since I uh, his military career was not of, of much interest to me. Uh, so I read a biography, and, and apparently he didn't distinguish himself at all. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> uh, in the War of eighteen, no combat in the War of eighteen twelve. No. Uh, very little combat in Indian wars, hmm. except for one battle against Seminole Indians called the Battle of Lake o- Okeechobee okay. in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he got the, the nickname Rough and Ready from the army, uh, his soldiers in uh, Florida, because he. Uh, he, he slept on the ground when they had to sleep on the ground. He ate what they ate. He uh, he was just one of the guys. I see. So so maybe no great accomplishments before the Mexican War, but certainly during the Mexican-American War, he distinguished himself with victories at places like Buena Vista and Palo Alto. What was behind his success then as a military leader? Uh, well, again, I'm... I'm uh, Relying on a biography by a guy named Jack Bauer uh, 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 for this, who who said that he had, uh, 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 he had very good uh, 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 regimental commanders uh, uh, and brigade leaders, uh, and uh, in all of those battles, uh, uh, the uh, uh, American artillery was far superior. Uh, to the Mexican artillery, but uh, Bauer doesn't give uh, uh, Taylor personal credit for any of his victories. 
but certainly Buena Vista mm-hmm. uh, uh, made him an instant presidential yeah. uh, candidate, or uh, uh, because it, it it occurred on Washington's birthday. The battle mm-hmm. occurred on February twenty second and twenty third, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, people glommed onto that once the news. Uh, uh, reached uh, the East Coast, and uh, it took a couple of months uh, for that uh, uh, to happen. I, w- I was always amazed after those successes that Polk kind of displaced Taylor as as the leader and sent Winfield Scott. Was it because of that political jealousy? Well, yes and no. Uh, <laughs> Polk got very frustrated because both Scott and Taylor were known to be Whigs. He thought about uh, appointing somebody like Thomas Hart Benton to get a Democrat as a general. But uh, I'm looking at this question, and, um, you know, Polk went to war in order to get California. He wanted uh, to force the Mexicans to cede California to him by treaty. Uh, And I think he must have realized that uh, uh, Taylor's it would it would have been logistically impossible for Taylor to march from northern Mexico uh, to Mexico City. You couldn't have to supply him, so you you had to have this this landing on the on the Gulf Coast and uh, the march to Mexico City that way. Uh, but he did want to take the wind out of Taylor's sail by uh, uh, not, not letting him get all the glory from the Mexican War. Well, if he wanted to decrease his political fortunes, that certainly wasn't the case. We know that Taylor was nominated in 48 by the Whig Party for the presidency. What what led Taylor to the Whig Party, and why did that party embrace him rather than one of their old stalwarts like, like uh, Henry Clay from my home state of Kentucky? Well, uh, Taylor was raised in Kentucky. Uh, he was born in Virginia. He was another one of those guys born in Virginia. But he was raised in Kentucky, and he got to know uh, leaders of uh, the Kentucky Whig Party with whom he corresponded uh, while he was uh, in uh, Mexico. Uh, the most important uh, being a guy named Crittenden, John mm-hmm. J. Crittenden, uh, who was a senator uh, from uh, a Whig senator from Kentucky. Uh, during the war. Uh, as to why the party nominated him, uh, uh, this is a complicated story. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Uh, the Whigs uh, uh, had won the off-year congressional elections of 1846 and 47 by running against uh, Polk's record on economic issues, that he'd lowered the tariff, uh, that he'd uh, got Congress to pass an independent Treasury Act. Uh, uh, the Whigs had charged that, that would, uh, those laws would bring about a depression, uh, the country would run out of gold, uh, and hence there'd be no bank credit to uh, uh, you know, back up banknotes. Uh, but uh, the, uh, uh, the Mexican War, the start of the Mexican War, coincided with two things. Uh, uh, the Irish potato famine and the repeal of corn laws in England, uh, which meant that there were massive exports uh, of American grain uh, to um, Britain uh, in 46 and 47, which which caused an inflow of British gold. Uh, the, so the Whig predictions about uh, the economic impact of democratic policies failed. 
uh, it didn't work out for a while. And, and then the Whigs were going to run against the war and any territorial acquisition from it. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, ratification of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in February uh, 1848 uh, took that issue away from them. Uh, and they realized they had they didn't have any issues, uh, and uh, the Democrats had a record of a successful war and a prosperous economy. So as, as some person wrote, uh, uh, we need uh, the aid of gunpowder to capture the fortress of Locofocoism. Uh, and it turned out that if you went to, if you look at the uh, the Whig convention, uh, that both Winfield Scott and Taylor were candidates for the nomination. Uh, they got, uh, by the final ballot, 84% of, of the votes. Uh, uh, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, between them, got only 16% uh, of the ballots. Uh, so it was, uh, it was a felt need for a military hero to give Whigs their only chance. Now, the other thing uh, to note, if you and, and I've uh, uh, studied the, those roll call votes uh, pretty closely, uh, the other thing to note about it is that Taylor uh, at the, the Whig convention was strongest. Uh, he had the most solid support from um, uh, traditional Democratic states where the Whigs had no chance uh, of winning uh, with a regular uh, Whig candidate. Um, and the strongest Whig states were uh, provided the most opposition uh, to Taylor's nomination until he got it. Uh, and even then, uh, there was a great deal of bitterness uh, among um, Northern Whigs in particular. They, they saw it as a Southern coup uh, that had gotten Taylor uh, the nomination. So we know he was successful in his run for the presidency and immediately faced this growing crisis over slavery made greater now with the immense amount of territory gained from Mexico. How did Taylor address that crisis and what were his views on what became known as the compromise of 1850? There were two uh, aspects to uh, the crisis that he inherited. One was over slavery expansion. Well, both of them actually involved slavery expansion, but uh, in 1846, a bill called the Wilmot Proviso was introduced into the House of Representatives uh, that would bar slavery from any territory taken from Mexico as a result of the war. Every time that bill came up in, in Congress, and it did repeatedly uh, in, in 1847 and in 1848, uh, uh, Congress polarized along sectional lines over it, unanimous Southern opposition to it. Uh, uh, almost unanimous uh, northern support for it. Uh, by uh, the time Taylor was inaugurated, 14 of 15 uh, uh, northern state legislatures had instructed their senators uh, not to allow the organization of any formal organization of territories in the Mexican session without the Wilmot Proviso, without slavery barred from it, uh, and southern state legislature after southern state legislature said, we will secede if Congress ever passes, ever enacts uh, the Wilmot Proviso. So that was one part of the crisis. The other part was that Texas claimed everything east of the Rio Grande River, including Santa Fe, which was clearly in New Mexico. 
so there was a crisis on, on the border. Uh, uh, by the summer of 1850, uh, uh, the Texas governor said, threatened to send Texas troops to seize uh, Santa Fe uh, uh, from uh, U- U.S. troops holding it. Uh, so Taylor's solution to this, uh, uh, and I think it was a good one, uh, it, it made a great deal of sense, was that since the Wilmot Proviso could only be provi- imposed on territories if, when Congress uh, organized them, uh, his solution was to bring California and uh, New Mexico uh, in as states immediately to skip a formal territorial stage so the Wilmot Proviso would be moot. Uh, he also arranged, uh, I found this out, uh, interesting enough, to uh, persuade uh, the Mormons in Utah to become part of uh, California. Uh, uh, but they, they didn't, and they actually sent people to be, go to the California Constitutional Convention. Hmm. They didn't get there uh, in time. But Taylor's plan was to admit New Mexico and uh, California as states. Uh, he hoped they would be free states, even though he was a big slaveholder himself. Uh, uh, he wasn't uh, uh, pro-slavery. Uh, and uh, because that was his plan, uh, uh, he hated the Compromise of 1850. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, people uh, were sure he would veto it and if ever passed Congress uh, while he was alive, uh, because it was a rival plan. Uh, and. Uh, uh, Clay, who had uh, originally proposed the bills that were were changed significantly from his original proposals, uh, uh, had had openly denounced uh, or announced that his plan was superior uh, to Taylor's because it would solve a number of problems, uh, including that Taylor had no real solution for the Texas-New Mexico boundary dispute other than to send more federal troops to Santa Fe to, to, to hold it against any Texas claims. Uh, but uh, the short answer to your question is uh, he opposed uh, the, the laws that became the Compromise of 1850. We know that he didn't have very long, frankly, to, uh, to deal with these crises. He died on July 9th of 1850, the second president to die while in office. What, what led to his death? It was a severe case of, of gastroenteritis. It was mis, misdiagnosed and mistreated by uh, doctors who were giving him all these compounds of mercury and things. Uh, and and I suspect, uh, much as in the case uh, of, of uh, James Garfield, that it was the... <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, the, the doctors finally did him in uh, as they as they did uh, with Garfield by probing around for a bullet with dirty fingers in yeah. it. It it wasn't poison. Uh, you you might remember uh, uh, that there was uh, I don't know twenty years ago or something. There they, they actually raised Taylor's body from the grave to, because there was a rumor that he'd been poisoned. Yes. Uh, and as I said, I, I I certainly knew who the candidate would be, <laughs> who my candidate as the murderer would be uh, if he had been poisoned, but he wasn't. Well, tell us that candidate. Uh, he was a congressman from Texas who was furious uh, with with the way Taylor was opposing uh, 
the state of Texas's claims to every all the land east of the uh, Rio Grande River. I see. See, well, I will tell you some of that scientific work examining Zachary Taylor's hair was done in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I know for a fact. And if our listeners go to the American Museum of Science and Energy today in Oak Ridge, strands of Zachary Taylor's hair are on display there from those ah. tests. I, I know that from uh, some personal experience. So, so uh, upon Taylor's death, his vice president, Millard Fillmore, assumes office. Tell us uh, some about Fillmore's background. Where was he from? What were his political roles prior to becoming vice president and then president? He was born, he really was born in a log cabin uh, uh, in uh, what we State New York was self-educated. Uh, eventually, read law, moved to Buffalo, uh, and was a leading citizen of Buffalo. He uh, represented uh, the Buffalo area, Erie County, New York, in Congress as a Whig in the early 1840s. He became uh, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. He wrote uh, the Tariff Act of 1842 uh, that the Whigs. Uh, passed. He was an unsuccessful candidate for governor of New York in 1844. Then he was elected something called Comptroller uh, of New York uh, in 1846. Uh, and here I really admire. Uh, he wrote a report as Comptroller, which looked after the the, the state banks, uh, the state chartered banks in New York, and the safety fund banks, about how to reform the safety fund system. It was really a brilliant piece of economic analysis, mm. I think. Uh, and it, it became the model I mean, for the national banking system that was adopted in the, uh, the Civil War. Mm. Um, he obtained the vice presidency because uh, once Taylor was nominated, the Northerners insisted there have to, you know, the vice president had to come from the free states. Enemies, political enemies of, of, of William Seward and Thurlow Weed that led the rival uh, wing of the Whig Party in New York uh, uh, persuaded the convention uh, uh, to put Fillmore on the ticket uh, because they feared if, uh, if, somebody, if the vice president came from a different northern state, uh, then that Seward, their enemy, uh, would be put in, in Taylor's cabinet. Uh, and they didn't want to happen. And instead, Seward uh, ended up in the Senate. When Fillmore becomes president, he had been vice president during the debates in the Senate on the Compromise of 1850. When he becomes president, he signs the bills that make that compromise. What were his views on slavery, on the sectional crisis, and on that compromise? Within a week uh, of becoming president, he found this letter that uh, the governor of Texas, a guy named P.H. Bell, Peter H. Bell, had sent to Taylor, uh, threatening to send Texas troops to march on Santa Fe to hold it for uh, hold it for Texas. They claimed it, uh, and and he so he thought that this crisis had to be solved. That the Texas New Mexico boundary about where that was. He and uh, his Secretary of State sent uh, messages to uh, uh, Congress, uh, one uh, saying that they were going to, uh, they would use federal troops to prevent Texas uh, from taking over Santa Fe, uh, but that Congress had to come up with a solution to that border dispute. Uh, and, uh, and he added uh, other 
uh, disputes. These messages went to Congress on August 6, uh, 1850. Uh, that got the ball uh, rolling uh, for a, uh, a solution. Readily signed the five bills uh, uh, that constituted uh, the compromise. He was. Uh, he wrote somebody. Uh, it was the longest session of Congress held until then. Uh, that the long agony is over. Mm. Uh, but he played. He and and Webster played a major role in 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 strong twisting the arms of Northern Whigs in the House and the Senate to abstain on all the pro-Southern legislation rather uh, than uh, uh, to vote against it, uh, so that they could it could pass. Uh, uh, and he wrote at the time, uh, uh, I was asked to come up with a quote from Fillmore, uh, uh, my only object is to save the country mm-hmm. and, and and to save the Whig party if possible. Mm-hmm. Said because the Whigs were badly split over the compromise. Almost all Northern Whigs opposed it uh, and almost all Southern Whigs supported it. Is that why he wasn't nominated by the Whig Party for the presidency in, in 1852? Well, it is, because he insisted that the, the compromise uh, was a finality on all uh, questions involving slavery. Uh, uh, Northerners didn't want to accept it. They had, mm-hmm. they had been, Northern Whigs had been on record for years saying, we will not allow any territories to be formally organized in the Mexican session unless slavery is prohibited from them. Uh, and of course, the Compromise of 1850 allowed slavery uh, in to uh, uh, New Mexico Territory and Utah, and said that any states formed out of them uh, would have it could be slave or free, depending on the Constitution, and had to be admitted uh, as slave states. Uh, so the the Compromise uh, was poison uh, to most Northern Whigs, as, as one of them uh, wrote. I. Uh, Another one of my favorite quotes from this time, uh, God save us from Whig vice presidents, because <laughs> they were thinking that Tyler had Tyler, ruined yes. the party. <laughs> uh, and now uh, uh, Fillmore. But, but that, so uh, that's the main reason. But in fact, at the convention, uh, the Whig convention, which took uh, something like 52 ballots, the pro-compromise uh, forces had a majority of delegates, but they were split. Uh, primarily, most of them favored Fillmore for the nomination, uh, but the the delegates from Massachusetts and New Hampshire insisted that Daniel Webster, the Secretary of State, uh, get the nomination, and they refused to back Fillmore. They had the votes. Uh, to, to nominate either one of them uh, in '52, and and they refused to do it uh, until the end. On the on the same day, both Webster and uh, Fillmore sent messages to their 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 floor leaders to withdraw their names uh, from nomination, uh, and Winfield Scott got it instead. You've written a, a great deal on that Whig Party and its ultimate demise. What what led to its demise in those immediate pre-war years? Well, let me tell you what I think is the the, the least understood by uh, by most people today, but ultimately the most important reason, uh, and that is uh, that, that new parties could be started easily because of the ballot laws. In the 19th century, parties printed their own ballots. They didn't have to get on a state-printed ballot. They didn't have to get signatures 
to get started uh, to, to run. Uh, so new parties arose between 52 and 50, uh, 1852 and 1856 that essentially sucked off uh, uh, the Whig uh, uh, voting support uh, in both sections. One of them uh, was a nativist um, no, uh, and a Catholic and an immigrant know-nothing party. Uh, and the other was the new Republican Party that was formed in response uh, to the enactment of the Kansas-Nebraska Act uh, in 1854. One of those parties, the Know Nothing Party, nominated Fillmore in 1856 for the presidency. How did that come about? What was that party all about? And if I understand correctly, they were anti-immigrant. Why was Fillmore, who wasn't known to be an anti-immigrant person, the nominee for that party? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that was uh, was anti-immigrant at all, but he did. Uh, the Know Nothings, uh, American Party, the Know Nothings started as a secret fraternal organization uh, where members were asked by somebody about it. They, they were supposed to say, I know nothing about it, uh, and uh, hence the, uh, the sobriquet. Uh, I think they were more vehemently anti-Catholic uh, than they were uh, and an immigrant, but they did want to increase the naturalization uh, period from immigrants from five to 21 years, mm-hmm. uh, so they couldn't vote. Uh, there were a number of uh, uh, things that that increased hostility to Catholics uh, and uh, immigrants in the early uh, 1850s. Irishmen were brought over uh, to build railroads. Uh, the early 1850s was a period of considerable railroad building, especially in the North. Uh, then there was a, a, a recession, a mini depression in the last six months of 1854 and uh, 18, or first six months of 1855. Work on railroads stopped. All these Irish went into town, towns looking for jobs, competing uh, with native born. Uh, workers. Uh, uh, the Catholic Church uh, simply physically grew. I mean, there were more more churches, more priests, more bishops, uh, and Catholics used uh, pressure in a number of northern state legislatures in Ohio, in Maryland, in New York, uh, and Massachusetts uh, to try to get state laws to uh, uh, prohibit the reading of the King James uh, Version of the Bible in public schools, or conversely, to get public tax support for Catholic parochial schools. Uh, and this uh, outraged a lot of people. So there was an intensification of anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic sentiment that uh, uh, that party captured. And Normally, uh, people with nativist leanings would have voted Whigs, but uh, Winfield Scott uh, openly <laughs> appealed uh, for Catholic votes uh, and uh, Catholic and immigrant votes in the 1852 election, which turned people uh, people who didn't like Catholics bitterly against the Whig Party, and they'd always been against the Democratic Party because it was the home of Catholics and immigrants. Mm-hmm. When we look at Taylor and Fillmore today, often they're seen as minor presidents who didn't accomplish much, who didn't stem the tide moving the country toward civil war. Is that a fair characterization? And how would you define both of their legacies, good and bad? Uh, nobody stemmed the t- if there was the tide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly Lincoln mm-hmm. didn't. Uh, uh, moving the country 
uh, towards um, uh, civil war. Uh, I think it's not a fair characterization to say they did nothing to stem the tide. The Compromise of 1850, which uh, Fillmore pushed uh, support for and, and signed the laws, uh, stemmed the tide of the Civil War for at least 10 years. So I, I, I think Fillmore uh, had, a, had a positive legacy. There's a, a guy named Paul Finkelman who wrote a little biography of Millard Fillmore who uh, attacks him because he signed uh, and enforced the Fugitive Slave Act. But uh, uh, again, I can read, my only object is to save the country. He, he wanted to keep it from splitting uh, apart over slavery. Taylor is 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 a, a different kettle of fish for me. I I think he had a uh, a good plan for for uh, dealing with the Mexican cession, uh, but it, it, it his opposition prevented the compromise of 1850 from passing. And and I think he was uh, the way he handled federal patronage was poisonous for the Whig Party. Uh, uh, which I have a certain fondness for, yeah. <laughs> having spent 22 years writing yes, right yes. history. I understand, <laughs> yes. Well, Michael, I have a few personal questions about POTUS number 12 and POTUS number 13. Here we go. First off, an observation. If you look at a picture of Zachary Taylor, okay. I see the actor Tommy Lee Jones, like spot on. <laughs> Don't you? It's close. Yeah. It's it's just. I mean, he could. Uh, no, that's true. I, uh, uh, even even more so than than um, uh, Thaddeus Stevens. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. right. Playing uh, in Lincoln. Yeah, he could have an accent. That Southern accent. Yeah, that's right. I've just always Texas thought that every time I see a picture next, of Zachary Taylor, the, the next biopic, Tommy Lee Jones, Zachary Taylor, old rough and ready. All right, I like it. <laughs> All right. So we've talked a lot about the Whig party in this episode. If these two men were around today, would they be Democrats or Republicans? I'm pretty sure that there would be a Democrat. I don't know anything about his racial views, but he owned over a hundred slaves. And uh, I'm sorry that Taylor would be uh, a Republican, uh, not a Democrat um, uh, today. Um, and uh, because Republicans used to be stronger on defense, I don't know whether that's true anymore or not. Yeah. Uh, Fillmore is tougher to say. I, I suggest I think Fillmore probably would lean towards uh, the Democrats uh, uh, because he believed in uh, in governmental action to promote economic development, uh, and uh, and the party of governmental activism now uh, yeah. are the Democrats. Yeah. Fair enough. So Zachary Taylor was one of many presidents to also be a general. So which title meant the most to him, president or general? What do you think? Oh, I'm sure general. I'm, I'm positive general. So it goes along with all the other all presidents the others. that have been generals. <laughs> we see a pattern. Yeah. All right. There have been some great Secret Service code names throughout the presidency, like Rawhide, Lancer, and Renegade, just to name a few. What would Taylor's code name have been? Well, uh, Rough and Ready comes uh, 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 easily to mind uh, uh, with him. And as for Fillmore, uh, it would have had to have been Buffalo. 
Oh, Buffalo. Yeah, Good. Yeah. I like that. Who would be more interesting to go out to dinner with <laughs> Taylor or Fillmore? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Who would be the better uh, conversationalist? Uh, yeah. I, from what I, uh, uh, what I've read, uh, and, and certainly in, in contemporary manuscripts, uh, and things, um, Taylor would have been tough uh, uh, to deal with. I, he would have been like my uh, my my colleague, the famous uh, historian Van Woodward, who was just silent as hell. You ended up babbling <laughs> because you couldn't get the guy to yes. say anything. Uh, uh, and uh, Fillmore, I uh, I think, because they, Fillmore had a genuine interest in uh, interest in economic policy. Uh, and and knew a hell of a lot about it. I said that report he wrote as Comptroller of New York was just a brilliant piece uh, of work, so I think Fillmore would be my choice. Okay. Do you have a memorable quote or moment from either of these two presidents? Something that stands uh, out? Well, I, uh, I'll give you... Uh, I, gave, I gave you some Taylor quotes, but I'll uh, repeat them at, at the end of that uh, that session that lasted from early December till uh, September 30th, the uh, first session of the 31st Congress. The long agony is over. Uh, but for Taylor, it has to be, uh, and this is what some guy said at the end of the Whig Convention in 1848 when somebody spoke up, we don't have a platform. Uh, and somebody yelled, we don't, we don't need a platform. All we have to do is give this quote uh, from the Battle of Buena Vista from Taylor, a little more grape, Captain Bragg. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect platform. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Finally, in just one or two sentences, I know this is going to be tough, but can you describe the impact these two presidents had on the country during this incredibly tense period? Yeah. Uh, uh, Zachary Taylor almost caused a shooting civil war between the United States government uh, and southern state forces uh, by threatening to march on Santa Fe to keep it out of the hands uh, of Texas. Uh, And Millard Fillmore resolved that crisis uh, by pushing for settlement uh, of the New Mexico-Texas boundary in the Compromise of 1850. Taylor caused a crisis, and Fillmore resolved it. Michael, it's been a fascinating conversation. What are you working on right now? <laughs> Nothing. That's, that's great. <laughs> Good for you. Retirement, Good for huh? you. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I'm not. I'm, not, I'm, 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 I'm reading uh, things. I, I try to read nonfiction uh, mm-hmm. in the day and, and uh, mysteries at night, but uh, I, I, I just I don't have the concentration anymore to try to write, mm-hmm. write anything. We have an amazing body of work, and we really appreciate you joining us today on American POTUS. Okay. It was my pleasure again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. If you have a moment, please rate and review this show and the player you're listening to right now. We appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast. We'd like to thank author Michael Holt for joining us on this episode about these two presidents and the Whig Party. More information on his books, along with all our other terrific experts, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. 
While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. It's our presidential last word from Zachary Taylor, quote, If elected, I would not be the mere president of a party. I would endeavor to act independent of party domination. <laughs>